Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Russia and Ukraine disagreeing about what happened in the town of Bucha. What are both sides saying? The foreman German chancellor stands by her decision of reportedly blocking Ukraine from joining NATO in 2008. Her statement comes after criticism from Ukrainian President Zelensky on Sunday. Russia says it will respond symmetrically to the expulsion of its officials. That's amid Western outrage of Russia's alleged massacre of Ukrainian civilians. Growing numbers of Finns and Swedes are in favor of NATO membership. The two Nordic countries are now feeling a threat from Russia. Ukraine's president says he has no other choice but to keep peace talks going with Moscow. This amid conflicting news about what happened in Bucha. Warning, the following video may be disturbing for some viewers due to its graphic nature. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Tuesday, Ukraine has no option but to negotiate with Russia to end fighting, even though he called it a challenge. This after accusing Russian troops of killing civilians in the town of Bucha. The challenge is internal, first of all, one's own human challenge. Then when you pull yourself together and you have to do it, I think that we have no other choice. Images appear to show mass graves and bodies in Bucha. Zelensky Monday said at least 300 civilians have been killed in Bucha alone. I would like to emphasize that we are interested in the most complete, transparent investigation, the results of which will be known and explained to the entire international community. Russia denies Ukraine's allegations, saying footage and pictures showing dead bodies in Bucha are, quote, another provocation by Kyiv. Russia's defense ministry accused Ukraine of staging the graves and bodies to tarnish Russia. Soldiers of the 72nd Ukrainian Main Center for Psychological Operations conducted another staged filming of civilians allegedly killed by the violent actions of the Russian armed forces. Russia's defense ministry said Russian military units had left Bucha on March 30th and civilians had been free to move around the town or evacuate while it was under Russian control. Russia's ambassador to the United Nations said they plan to present the evidence as soon as possible. We have factual evidence uh, that uh, proves this point. He also said this is warfare and anything can happen. You cannot exclude that uh, civilians are dying in a war. Uh, And that is a sad fact of life. But uh, the footage that we are being presented with does not give us uh, any doubt that that was a stage. Ukraine's president said despite what's happened, they should still pursue talks. Russian news agency Interfax reports the talks continue via video link, citing a Russian official. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and the EU's top diplomat, Josep Borrell, will travel to Kyiv this week. They're planning to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. That's according to the EU spokesman. The meeting will take place prior to an event called Stand Up for Ukraine that raises funds for displaced refugees. Former German Chancellor Angela Merkel responded to Zelensky's criticism, which suggested that his country is suffering aggression from Russia because of her decision. Merkel reportedly blocked Ukraine from joining NATO at a summit in 2008 in Bucharest, Romania. Merkel said she stands by her decision in a statement, which went on to say, In view of the atrocities uncovered in Bucha and other places in Ukraine, 
all efforts by the government and the international community to stand by Ukraine's side and to bring an end to Russia's barbarism and war against Ukraine have the former chancellor's full support. Former French President Nicolas Sarkozy also reportedly made the decision not to admit Ukraine into NATO. And Zelensky called the decision a miscalculation. He says it casts a shadow over Merkel's legacy as chancellor, and he noted that the U.S. pushed for Ukraine's membership. Furthermore, Zelensky accused the two European leaders of trying to appease Russia when they made their decision. In 2008, Germany considered it too early to allow Ukraine in the alliance. At the time, it found that political conditions were not suitable. As Zelensky levels this criticism, Germany's dependence on Russian energy comes under scrutiny. Germany gets about half of its gas from Russia. That's as of the time of the invasion. This dependence has left Berlin saying that it can't stop importing gas from Russia. That said, German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier expressed regret over his willingness to allow the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He said, My adherence to Nord Stream 2 was clearly a mistake. We were holding on to bridges that Russia no longer believed in and from which our partners had warned us about. And back to the criticism, Zelensky insisted he does not blame anyone except the Russians. But he said they have the right to talk about the indecision. The massacre that Ukraine is accusing Russia of committing in Bucha has put Russian energy exports into the spotlight again. Now European officials are calling for an end to buying Russian oil and gas. Joining us now is the director of Entercom Incorporated, Dan Genovese. He explains how the redirection of Russian oil based on sanctions could affect Western countries. Yeah, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that uh, Russian oil is going to find its way into, you know, with the sanctions in place. I'm not sure it's going to find its way into Western markets. But what I think we'll see is um, it finding its way into other markets and displacing, you know, maybe some of the exports coming out of uh, Western countries in the U.S., uh, I think that's probably more likely. I think there's still buyers out there uh, that will deal directly with the Russian government uh, for that crude. Um, so that's where I think it's going to be. It's 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 still going to be out in the market. It's just going to displace crude coming from other places, uh, maybe into uh, Asia and some uh, you know, India and Asia. Uh, I think that's what's probably going to happen with Russian crude. And ExxonMobil has reportedly made big profits in the first quarter, but since it's planned to leave Russia, it may lose a lot of money. Do you think this decision was based on ethics, and will it save the company more money in the long run? You know, I think there's always, uh, you know, I think as we we evaluate risk, uh, especially, you know, governmental risk uh, for doing business in in some countries uh, and producing oil, uh, I think that's something that every energy company has to evaluate. Uh, I think with the advent of, you know, ESG and ESG reporting uh, and, and trying to take on, you know, uh, some of the understanding of what investors are at risk and, and, and certainly political risk is a big factor. I think it's both. I think uh, Exxon's probably moving out of Russia um, because of ethics, uh, but also, uh, as you said, you know, there's probably some long-term shareholder risks there that they're trying to mitigate. The likelihood that Sweden and Finland will join NATO is increasing. The idea has strong support from citizens in both countries. That means Russia could face a stronger military alliance from the West after its invasion of Ukraine. 
For the first time, Finnish and Swedish forces formed a joint brigade in a NATO exercise in Arctic Norway. A Swedish major spoke of the threat now facing the two Nordic countries. The security situation in, in whole Europe has changed and we have to accept it and we have to, we have to adopt to that. Once a neutral neighbor, Finland shares more than 800 miles of border with Russia. But now the country is getting closer to the prospect of becoming a NATO ally. According to Finland's foreign minister, Finnish leaders have discussed the possibility of joining NATO with almost all of its 30 members. The country plans to submit a review to parliament by mid-April. Meanwhile, in Sweden, a poll found almost 60% of Swedes would endorse NATO membership if Finland were to join. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the alliance now shares with Sweden and Finland all information about the war in Ukraine, and both countries regularly attend NATO meetings. He said it would be possible to allow Finland and Sweden in quite quickly, but for now, there remains an important difference. What I can say is that Sweden and Finland are close partners. Their security, of course, matters for us. But the absolute security guarantees that we provide for NATO allies are only for NATO allies. The Russian invasion triggered almost 3,000 Finns to apply for reservist status. Another 1,000 women chose to join emergency preparedness groups. One of them is a coordinator of Finland's National Education Agency. Overall, Finland's defense is very good, and we have always been here next to Russia. We often get asked if we are afraid, and I feel that Finns are not afraid. But we have to keep our heads up and keep things under control in terms of defense. We have invested in that. In the past month, Finns' support for NATO membership has risen to a record level. A new poll shows that more than 60 percent of respondents were in favor, less than 20 percent opposed. Spanish police Monday impounded a superyacht belonging to a Russian oligarch on behalf of U.S. authorities. This is the first time the United States has seized property belonging to a Russian oligarch since the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine. The superyacht was impounded by Spanish police on behalf of U.S. authorities. The 225-foot vessel is valued at more than $99 million. It was seized in a shipyard on the Mediterranean island of Mallorca. Officers, including FBI agents, searched the multi-million dollar yacht. The Justice Department said that the superyacht is subject to seizure based on violations of U.S. bank fraud, money laundering, and sanction statutes. The owner heads aluminum-to-energy conglomerate Renova. His spokesperson had no immediate comment. Moscow is threatening the West with symmetrical punishment after a swath of European countries expelled Russian diplomats following more atrocities in Ukraine. European countries have expelled numerous Russian diplomats following what appears to be a massacre in northern Ukraine. Ukrainian authorities said the bodies of more than 400 civilians were found in Bucha, outside Kyiv, after Russian troops withdrew last week. Germany on Monday declared a significant number of Russian diplomats on its soil as undesirable. Germany's foreign minister Annalena Baerbock said the images from Bucha testified to an unbelievable brutality on the part of the Russian leadership and those who follow its propaganda. The Kremlin denies responsibility for the killings. Germany kicked out 40 officials from the Russian embassy in Berlin. Other countries have taken similar steps. France expelled 35 Russian diplomats, Italy 30, Denmark 15, and Sweden 3. Swedish Foreign Minister Anne Lind said the expelled diplomats were conducting illegal activities in Sweden and she accused Russia of war crimes. The images we have seen from Bucha and other places in Ukraine are deeply shocking. 
deliberate attacks on civilians, including executions and rape, constitute serious war crimes. Belgium, the Netherlands, Bulgaria and Poland have all followed suit. In response, Russia said it would retaliate against Europe's expulsion of its officials. In a post on his Telegram channel, the country's deputy head of security, Dmitry Medvedev, said the country's response will be, quote, symmetrical and destructive for bilateral relations. He asked, who have they punished? First of all, themselves. He also warned of closing Western embassies if such punishment continues. The Biden administration is taking steps to increase production of critical minerals on U.S. soil. An executive in the mining industry joins us now. She is Luisa Moreno. She's the president of Defense Metals Corp. She explains how China processes most of the world's rare earth, and she says the U.S. mines about 15% of those elements, but they are exported to China for processing. Morena tells us how this dynamic plays into electric vehicles and China's role in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, they will have to significantly look at uh, the reality of it first and, and decide how they were going to support uh, companies, mining companies uh, that are producing uh, outside, outside China and how they're going to be able to, within the timeline that they have, to be able to supply the rare earth to the various industries in, in America. Is it a slippery slope to start producing more electric vehicles without another source for rare earths outside of China? Um, well, the good news is that uh, the adoption is gradual. And so we have a little bit of time here uh, as we transition to, to electric vehicles. And so that is time for, for the Biden administration, uh, for the, the government uh, in US, in Europe, as well as Canada, to start preparing and supporting the companies in order to be able to have that supply chain ready to support uh, the deployment, uh, the mass deployment of electric vehicles. How many of these many rare earths come from Russia? So Russia produces uh, about, I would say about 3,000 tons of the 280,000 tons that are um, produced globally. Uh, so it is a small percentage, but uh, it might be a significant one. So the Russia production goes to Estonia currently, where it is uh, separated. Um, and so there is an impact there uh, as well. And how could any potential ties between Russia and China affect the supply chain of these rare earths? In a massive way, certainly. Um, if uh, if the U.S. decides to put forward sanctions against uh, China or even India that stayed neutral, um, and then that could be uh, a compounded compounded problem because uh, India, Russia, and uh, and China are all producers of rare earth. So, are there any bits of advice that you have for Americans going forward here in, in terms of how these rare earths are sourced? No, I think that uh, it's important for uh, for the U.S. to continue to partner uh, with neighbors, <laughs> with, uh, with with Canada specifically, uh, as well as uh, with um, with Australia and other uh, countries around the world that have uh, rare earth, that have critical materials uh, like uh, other critical materials like lithium, and uh, and expand um, the way they they want to secure. The critical materials because that is more important than setting up um, you know parameters around what is produced in the US alone. 
Drone footage captured extensive damage to Hostomel Airport and the world's heaviest aircraft. The video was released by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. The Antonov-225 Maria cargo plane was destroyed by a Russian attack on the airport situated in a northwestern suburb of Kyiv. Maria, along with lighter aircraft housed in the hangar, was surrounded by burnt-out and abandoned tanks and other heavy artillery. Convoys of destroyed military vehicles also lined the tarmac outside the airport's hangar. Ukraine's state arms manufacturer reported in February that the Maria had been set ablaze in a Russian attack that, and that restoring it would cost more than $3 billion. A COVID-19 Omicron subvariant has been found in the United Kingdom. That's according to a recent World Health Organization statement. The UN health body says the subvariant, known as XE, is comprised of genetic material from the two Omicron strains BA1 and BA2. The update says the variant was first detected in the UK in January, and at least 600 cases have been reported so far. The WHO noted that early estimates suggest a community growth rate of 10% more than BA2, but further evidence is needed. The organization says further confirmation of XE and other variants is becoming more difficult because COVID is currently being tested less. Officials in the UK last week cautioned against jumping to any conclusions about the new subvariant. They say there's still too little data for a conclusive analysis of symptoms or rate of spread. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announces plans to revamp itself with Director Rochelle Walensky hiring an outside senior federal health official to conduct a one-month review. An associate administrator in the Department of Health and Human Services will join the CDC on a one-month assignment. They will provide Walensky insight into how the CDC's programs can be strengthened. She has also asked three senior officials at the CDC to gather feedback on the agency's current structure. They will also seek suggestions for a strategic change. The review follows criticism for the agency's response during the pandemic. Critics point to delays in developing a CCP virus test and say the guidance over masking, isolation, and quarantine was confusing. Walensky said the review will allow the CDC to develop new systems and processes. It will be driven by a keen focus on the agency's core capabilities like public health workforce, laboratory capacity, and rapid responses to disease outbreaks. The U.S. Agriculture Department is looking into vaccines as an option to protect poultry against deadly bird flu as the country faces its worst outbreak since 2015. Supporters say vaccines could help keep poultry alive, prevent financial losses, and control food costs. But shots would be too late to stop the current outbreak that has wiped out 22 million chickens and turkeys since February. Previously, the United States avoided vaccines. They were worried that importers would ban U.S. poultry shipments because they cannot distinguish infected birds from vaccinated ones. The Agriculture Department is investigating the potential for a vaccine that could be distinguished from the wild type of the virus. Some producers worry vaccines would be too expensive for chickens raised for meat. The United States is the world's second largest poultry meat exporter and a major egg producer with shipments reaching $4.2 billion in 2020. Trade has already suffered as some importers have blocked poultry from more than a dozen U.S. states with outbreaks. 
Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is poised to be confirmed this week to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. That, after the Senate voted on Monday 53-47 to to advance her nomination. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had to call that vote to break a deadlock because the Judiciary Committee voted 11-11 to on advancing the nomination. In the full floor vote, every Senate Democrat voted to advance Jackson's nomination, as did Republican Senators Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, and Lisa Murkowski. Jackson's final confirmation vote will be later this week. A White House official says that President Biden believes his son didn't break the law. That's after banking transactions between Hunter Biden and Chinese Communist Party-linked companies were confirmed last week. However, critics are asking whether the Biden family, including President Biden, is compromised by foreign interests because of these business ties. Entity's Chenny Wu tells us more. In an interview with ABC News on Sunday, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain said the president is confident that his son didn't break the law. That's after documents and messages from Hunter Biden's laptop reference a deal that he pursued with a Chinese Communist Party-linked energy firm for which he was paid nearly $5 million. This is according to the Washington Post, which hired two security experts to authenticate the laptop. Questions have long been swirling around the Biden family and their ties to businesses in China, Ukraine and other countries. The laptop story was first reported by the New York Post in late 2020, before Twitter, Facebook and other social media companies moved to limit its reach. Twitter locked the New York Post account for more than two weeks, claiming the outlet published hacked material. This was just prior to the 2020 election. The investigation surrounding Hunter Biden's laptop is ongoing. And in the meantime, the Secret Service is keeping Hunter Biden safe in a rented Malibu mansion at $30,000 a month in taxpayer dollars. That's according to an ABC report that cited unnamed sources. NTD is not able to independently verify these claims, and the White House did not respond to requests for comment before airtime. Critics are asking whether the president's son is compromised by foreign entities and whether the president is involved in these dealings. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton appeared on NBC over the weekend, but the program's host neglected to ask her about a major development involving her 2016 presidential campaign. Clinton's campaign recently agreed to pay fines after the Federal Election Commission found probable cause that the campaign had violated federal law in its payments to ex-British spy Christopher Steele. The Clinton campaign had paid Steele to compile a dossier which was full of baseless allegations concerning Trump and his alleged links to Russia. During the NBC interview, host Chuck Todd talked about Russia's purported efforts to help Donald Trump in his 2016 campaign, but Todd failed to mention the fines or ask Clinton about them. We reached out to NBC, but they did not respond by airtime. A disgraced Dallas councilman is back in the public eye. Dwayne Carraway was released from prison in February. He is the former mayor of Dallas and a five-term city councilman. He was convicted for tax evasion and accepting bribes related to a school bus stop arm camera system. Kickbacks totaled nearly half a million dollars. Because of the scandal, Dallas County Schools, a busing agency, was dissolved. Though Caraway was not held responsible for the collapse, taxpayers will be responsible to pay more than $100 million to cover the losses. 
In an interview with WFAA-TV in Dallas, he said he was coming back to public involvement. However, because of his felony conviction, he is barred for life from running for public office. But Caraway insists that he still wants to be part of a broader effort to clean up the community. He says he was serious when he represented his community before and that his desire to do so hasn't disappeared. An Oregon romance novelist is on trial after being charged with killing her husband in 2018. Back in 2011, Nancy Crampton Brophy wrote an essay titled, How to Murder Your Husband. That was years prior to his death. However, the judge announced that the essay will be excluded from the evidence in the trial, which began on Monday. In opening statements, the prosecution said Crampton Brophy bought a gun in 2018, a few months prior to Daniel Brophy's death. They say she made claims on 10 life insurance policies, making her the beneficiary of $1.4 million. Crampton Brophy has pleaded not guilty. Coming up, a push in California for a return of traditional Native American fire practices. Supporters believe it could help the state's wildfire problem. More on that here on NTD News. Authorities say a small plane crashed in the front yard of a home in New Jersey. One person was injured. The Federal Aviation Administration says the single-engine plane crashed Monday in Manville. It was close to Central Jersey Regional Airport. It departed earlier in the day from an airport in Greensboro, North Carolina, but it wasn't immediately clear how many people were on board. One person aboard the plane suffered undisclosed facial injuries. The cause of the crash remains under investigation. Police say a woman in a Hummer crashed into eight police cruisers and injured seven officers during a long, destructive car chase Sunday in Connecticut. The driver was captured after she wrecked the largest SUV in Monroe, about 25 miles away from where the pursuit began in Waterbury. Authorities say the 25-year-old driver, Hannah Casperson, was wanted in connection with dozens of car break-ins. She was taken to a hospital with injuries that weren't seen as life-threatening. Charges are pending. The chase began when Waterbury police, who had gotten information about her location, approached the Hummer shortly after 8.30 a.m., but the driver sped away and crashed into two cruisers before getting onto Interstate 84. She struck six more cruisers before crashing into a utility pole in Monroe. Six officers were taken to a hospital and later discharged. Officials say another injured officer did not need hospital treatment. The California Governor's Fire Task Force recently launched a plan to use more prescribed fire. This includes working with native tribes and cultural fire practitioners who faced restrictions on fire practices. NTD's David Lamb reports. California is looking for ways to curb its massive wildfire problem. One move is to once again allow a Native American custom known as cultural burning. Margot Robbins, the executive director at Cultural Fire Management Council, says the new legislation is a step in the right direction. She is also a basket weaver, which led her down the path to restore rights for indigenous fire practice. 
So the art of basket weaving was dying out in our community because of the fire suppression, fire exclusion era that has been going on for over a hundred years. She said hazel sticks need to be burned to be useful in basket weaving. The use of intentional fire practices have been prohibited since the early 1900s. Robbins is pushing to reclaim the use of fire for cultural purposes and tend the native land. She said her community had a lot of brush that created high fire danger. When we have one road leading on to and off of the reservation, very dangerous situation. So that was another reason why we needed to find a way to bring fire back to our homelands. Robbins lives on the Yurok Reservation near the California-Oregon border. Today, if we just go out and light something up, it'll start a forest fire. So the land has to be prepared in order to accept fire in a good way. You need to put fire lines around the area you're going to burn, usually. Sometimes you don't have to, but usually you have to. You need. She says they're not in a place to burn in their traditional way, but for cultural purposes. Traditionally, families would go out and burn at the right place at the right time. And because everybody took that responsibility upon themselves, our land was very different than what it is today. Robbins emphasized that there is a need to have people who know how to work with fire, sometimes traditional burners or trained firefighters. They use the modern-day method of qualified firefighters with yellow shirts, hard hats, and fire engines. David Lamb, Entity News, California. U.S. self-driving truck companies have a golden opportunity in the form of a nationwide driver shortage, but their robot drivers are still not ready, and neither are their biggest potential customers. With a nationwide shortage of truck drivers, self-driving trucks would appear to have a golden opportunity, but it seems they are missing out. Their robot drivers are not yet ready, and neither are their biggest potential customers who are in no rush to sign major contracts. There's certainly still some concerns about how real is it and when will it be there. Jim Monkmeyer is president of transportation at DHL Supply Chain, one of the giant logistics companies whose buy-in is key to the success of self-driving trucks. It is a lot of work evaluating the different providers to identify companies like Too Simple that are really at the top of their game, partnering with those companies working out the routes that fit our network for our shippers. DHL Supply Chain has so far partnered with Too Simple and competitor Embark and has put in reservations with both for future trucks to be fulfilled in 2024. DHL says contracts with multiple providers are key to reducing risks with the new technology. We're not at the point where we're shaking it out. I think we're at the point where we're still adding more, more players. The CEO of U.S. Express agreed, saying logistics firms like his were still testing multiple self-driving startups as a way to, quote, hedge their bets. While much attention has been focused on self-driving taxis, industry experts increasingly bet on driverless trucks to be the first autonomous vehicles to generate meaningful revenue. But the economics pan out only once the driver is removed. Most self-driving trucks still have safety drivers at the wheel. So far, only Too Simple has removed those drivers in a handful of nighttime trial runs. Too Simple is planning to present per-mile cost calculations in the next few months, said Cheng Lu, the company's former CEO, who now serves as an advisor. Ultimately, 
everybody in this industry, the key stakeholders, want to see autonomy happen because of the value proposition. Making a meaningful dent in the U.S. market of 2.3 million trucks will take time, however, and industry experts project no more than a few hundred thousand autonomous trucks over the next decade. Unresolved challenges include how to service the technology, such as radar and camera sensors, as well as making sure self-driving trucks can tackle tough driving conditions, such as snow and ice. Still to come, Australia unveils a plan to equip its ships with new long-range strike missiles. The country's defense minister cited the threat from China in the South Pacific. A German lawyer has been charged in a tax fraud case known as Cumex. He allegedly swindled taxpayers out of more than $300 million. Stay tuned for more in just a moment. The trial of a Kansas researcher, Feng Franklin Tao, has resumed. Federal prosecutors said he illegally worked full-time for Fuzhou University in China while conducting research at the University of Kansas. Meanwhile, he also received funding from the U.S. Department of Energy and National Science Foundation. Tao's defense attorney is trying to cast doubt on the government's handling of its prosecution. The, he called the FBI agent who oversaw his case to testify. The officer said he didn't know until after the professor's arrest that Tao was holding onto his grant work. Tao faces charges for failing to disclose his secret work for China on a conflict of interest form. According to the indictment, the scheme was designed to benefit China through the regime's talent plan. Prosecutors say the plan encourages U.S. universities to transfer intellectual property to Chinese state agencies. And in international news, it seems testing positive for COVID isn't bad enough for children in China. They were put in quarantine without their parents because policy in Shanghai says they have to be separated. The youngest scene was not even two months old. Parents are less than happy. NTD's Don Ma has the story. Just how strict is China's zero COVID policy? If you're a parent and you test negative, but your child tests positive, Chinese authorities will forcibly separate you from your child and put them in a quarantine facility without you. This is what's happening to many parents in Shanghai amid the lockdown. China expert and host of Epoch TV's China Insider, David Zhang, says it's inhumane. I think it's absolutely devastating for things like these to be happening in China. Lockdowns in China have turned into uh, a secondary humanitarian crisis. Sources say authorities had taken away hundreds of small children, all of them quarantined separate from their parents. They're put in Shanghai's Jinshan district. People call it Jinshan Infant Quarantine Facility. Videos and photos circulating online show what it looks like there. A photo shows three babies packed in one bed, and rows of beds are lined up in a lobby with many kids. Very few have adults with them. A mother had the chance to get into this quarantine site. According to her, some kids are only two years old. Even a 58-day-old baby was taken away from its parents and placed here alone. And hygiene conditions are terrible. She said when babies soil themselves, there's not even a place to go to to wash them. She estimated that upstairs alone, there were about 200 kids, and only 10 nurses were there taking care of them. 
But why is China going to such extremes to try to get to zero virus cases? David Zhang says it's about Xi Jinping's image. As a totalitarian leader, it's very hard for him to walk back any decisions he's made. Xi Jinping is seeking to get a third term, and if Xi Jinping were to reveal that he failed, and then that would be a large mistake for, for the uh, opponents to grab onto to try to stop him from getting uh, his third term. As public backlash grows stronger, Shanghai authorities are saying they will improve management and, quote, strengthen communication with the children's parents. Don Ma, NTD News. Australia is planning to equip its fighter jets and naval vessels with new long-range strike missiles. The country's defense minister, Peter Dutton, said he prayed that the situation in Europe and Ukraine would not spread to other countries. When we look at what's happened in the Ukraine, there is the prospect of Russia going into Poland or somewhere else uh, in Europe, and uh, that would be a repeat of the 1930s, uh, and that's not something that, that we, we should allow to happen. And similarly in the Indo-Pacific, I think China's been very open and honest about their intentions. and certainly not just through their words, but through their actions. Dutton said in the short term, Australia will buy these weapons from defense partners, but in the medium term, the government will look to develop its own manufacturing capabilities. The country plans to spend more than $2 billion for the missile upgrade program. The new long-range missiles can strike targets from over 500 miles away. Meanwhile, Australia's 24 Super Hornet jets, as well as F-35A Joint Strike fighter aircraft, will be equipped with the Joint Air-to-Surface Standoff Missile. The deadline is set for 2024, three years ahead of schedule. Australia is now facing the threat of a new treaty signed between its neighbor, the Solomon Islands, and Beijing. The agreement will open the door for the Chinese Communist Party to station armed police, troops, and weaponry in the South Pacific. Hanoberger, a German lawyer and tax specialist accused of playing a key role in a years-long tax fraud known as Cumex, went on trial accused of defrauding German taxpayers of more than $300. Cumex is Germany's biggest post-war fraud. It involves a share trading scheme. Prosecutors say it was promoted by Berger, a tax inspector turned tax advisor, and others. The method involved trading stocks of major companies around a syndicate of banks, investors, and hedge funds. That gave the impression of many owners, each entitled to a bogus tax rebate. The practice thrived between 2005 and 2012. Some of that time was after a financial crash when banks were bailed out by the state. A loophole that fostered the trades was then closed. Berger has always denied any wrongdoing and said what he did was within the law. The 71-year-old was arrested in Switzerland last year based on an extradition request from Germany. The Cumex tax fraud is the subject of multiple investigations across Germany. The government is trying to claw back billions in euros it said were stolen from the state. Just ahead, efforts are underway to protect a small group of monkeys in South Florida, though they are known to be an invasive species. Find out more here on NTD News. This is not something you see every day, a baby seal in the middle of a roadway. 
It happened in Southampton, New York on Sunday. Some people called police after they saw the seal wandering through a parking lot. It made its way near a hotel before it was rescued from a traffic circle. The New York Marine Resource Center had a team come retrieve the baby seal, and it was brought to a rehab center. The program director of the center says seal season is approaching. He says harbor seals usually rest on rocks and beaches, and something like this is uncommon. A group of non-native monkeys delight visitors near an airport in South Florida. Although they are considered an invasive species, efforts are underway to protect this small population. Next to an airport in Dania Beach, South Florida, about 40 vervet monkeys roam freely through a mangrove forest and car park. They are the descendants of a group of zoo escapees from the 1940s. They're very habituated to people, and if you look historically at their record being here for the last about 80 years, there's always been people feeding them. So there's always been a relationship between monkey and human here in Dania Beach. These African monkeys are local celebrities, much loved by tourists and nearby workers. Deborah Missy Williams is a science professor at Lynn University. She's working to protect this small colony. She founded the Dania Beach Vervet Project. So the goal of our project is, with this three and a half acres, is to be able to offer sanctuary for any monkey that gets into danger and is at risk of euthanasia. So instead of being euthanized or being placed with someone who might be a pet breeder, we can bring them here and offer them a safe space to live. Monkeys are considered an invasive species, and captured monkeys can't be released. But William says this colony doesn't harm the environment. It is so unusual, but still very amazing, that you'll see monkeys from Africa in an urban setting near the airport, near Port Everglades, where people park their cars, and just here comes a monkey walking along. They're not aggressive. They're just out and about conducting their business like you or I would. Williams says it's all about learning to share space with monkeys. Mexican gray wolves. You might just see one if you're in the southwestern U.S. Wildlife managers say their numbers have climbed. Now there are more than at any other time since the federal government started to reintroduce the endangered species. There are at least 196 in the wild in New Mexico and Arizona. It's the sixth straight year that wolf population has increased. But wildlife officials say last year more pups passed away than usual, and life was tougher too because of a drought. There are about 380 Mexican wolves in zoos and other places in Mexico and the U.S., The wild population in Mexico numbers around 40. The rarest subspecies of gray wolf in North America is the Mexican wolf. After being listed as endangered in the 70s, a U.S.-Mexico captive breeding program was started with the seven remaining wolves in existence. The National Maritime Museum in London is now playing temporary host to some of artist Canaletto's most iconic view paintings of Venice. The collection comprises extraordinarily detailed portraits of a living city, enlivened with people and boats and images that many viewers are sure to recognize. NTD's Neil Woodrow speaks with the display's curator. You may be familiar with Canaletto's famous paintings of Venice, such as the scenes of the Piazza San Marco and the Grand Canal. A collection of 24 pieces, including two large paintings, are being displayed for the first time away from their ancestral home, Woburn Abbey. Canaletto's Venice Revisited exhibition has opened at the National Maritime Museum, displaying what's thought to be the artist's largest single commission. 
they were painted for Lord John Russell, the fourth Duke of Bedford in the 1730s. They have been loaned from Woburn Abbey, currently closed to facilitate a major refurbishment program, where they are normally found in the dining room, in a less than ideal display to view them all, as the lead curator explains. Um, and there they're sort of stacked three high, um, or mostly, and so a lot of paintings you can't see very well because they're up very high. And one of the great opportunities that we've had for this exhibition is to bring them all down to eye level to give them lots of space and gorgeous lighting so you can really appreciate the detail and the sort of um, the fascinating, you know, kind of different elements that Canaletto includes in these pictures. The opening painting is one of the larger works of the collection. And it's the large paintings that really are kind of the heroes and the centerpieces of the series. Um, they focus on Venetian festivals. This particular one is a regatta on the Grand Canal. Um, so the Grand Canal, that central waterway in Venice, that is the lifeblood that, that sort of runs through the city. This painting, with all its colours, with all its details, is really Venice showing off its maritime prowess, the skill of its gondoliers racing through the painting. Lord John Russell's visit to Venice was part of the Grand Tour, an educational rite of passage for the wealthy in the 18th century. The 22 smaller paintings within this series are all sorts of scenes depicting everyday life within different locations around Venice. They are well known through various means. You might call the biscuit tin effect. Canaletto's paintings get reproduced. I mean, even as early as the 18th century, you have English travellers who, when they come to Venice, say, oh, I want to see what I've seen in Canaletto's, because they've been to stately homes and country houses back in England. They've seen these paintings, or they've seen them reproduced as engravings, and they want to go and, and, and see those sites for real. Tourism to Venice has grown tremendously since Canaletto's time. In January 1730, the year before Lord John Russell visited Venice, there were 30 Englishmen in Venice. In 2019, there were 28 million recorded visits to Venice. But this boom has a downside. The large cruise ships have become a kind of flashpoint for sort of local anger. Um, because of the sort of the disturbances that they cause within the water, within the canals, it causes damage to the foundations of the buildings, sort of erodes the lagoon bed. So there's sort of a balance to be struck between what is sustainable tourism and what is potentially damaging. The exhibition closes on the final large painting, depicting an important date for Venice, the Ascension Day Festival, 40 days after Easter Sunday. But in Venice, it's a civic event. The nature of this ritual of the ceremony is that the doge of Venice, so the governing sort of ruler of Venice, would go out in his barge, which is the sort of great big um, gold boat that you can see in the sort of middle distance in this composition. Um, that boat sails out to the middle of the Adriatic Sea and the doge drops a gold ring into the water to symbolise the city's marriage to the sea. This sort of festival goes back to the medieval period and is still going strong in the 18th century, which is obviously when this painting was created. It then sort of falls away in the 19th century but is revived in the 1960s and continues to be celebrated to this day, sort of showing the way that the sea and sort of the, the waters of the Venetian lagoon are still central to the city's identity and how it presents itself even in a 21st century context. Catherine says Canaletto is known for views of Venice, but the way he can capture the city is quite unique. The precise detail of the architecture, as well as the sort of crowds and the life that he brings to it. The exhibition runs at the National Maritime Museum till September the 25th. Canaletto was a native Venetian and became one of the most sought-after painters of the city's most beautiful views. Neil Woodrow, NTD News, London. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. 
Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.